today. Today, what I want us to do is I want us to think about not just the last 25 years, but I want us to think about the next 25. Is that okay? I want us to think about the next 25 years. I want to think about what will God's faithfulness look like 25 years from now. Because, see, this is what I believe. This is what I believe. I believe that God will be no less faithful in the next 25 years than he's been in the last 25. You know why? God doesn't change. God has been faithful. God is faithful. He will always be faithful. The question is, will we be faithful? Today, what I want us to, to look at and what I want us to think about is I want us to think about what the message of this church is supposed to look like. I want you to, to think about this for a moment. I, I want you just to, I, 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 not, you don't, I want to hear your answers necessarily. Just think about it in your own mind, all right? But I want you to think. I want you to pause and think. That's always a good thing to do in church, is to think. Sometimes we turn off our brain and just kind of listen, you know, kind of sing. But today I want you to think. And I want you to think about a question. You ever pray for someone that you really wanted to see them come to know Jesus? You ever do that? I want you to think about this. Why do some people believe and some people don't? Why is it that there are some people, maybe people you love, who believe, but there are other people you love who don't? Maybe this morning, One or more of you, you don't believe, or you're not sure if you believe, or you're trying to figure out why you should or shouldn't believe. Why is it that some people hear the Word of God and believe, and others hear the Word of God and don't believe? Uh, What I want to do is I want to just skim a little bit from 1 Corinthians 1. We talked a little bit about this last week. And then I want us to move into 1 Corinthians 2. But I want to try to answer that question for us. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'll just read it. Actually, I'm just going to read it here from my notes. It's a little easier, larger print. Not that I need larger print. I turned 60 last week, so I need larger print. All right. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. We're going to have it up here in the English Standard Version. Uh, if you want to open your Bible, that's fine. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18-25, through 25, this is what the Bible says. Paul is writing to a church that he had started a few, few years before in Corinth. It was a church in trouble. It was a church that needed revitalization. And what Paul says is he, he writes these words. He says, the word of the cross is foolishness. It is folly. The word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness for those who are perishing, dying. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. 
Paul continues. Where's the one who is wise? Remember, he's in Corinth. The Greeks were, you know, they, they prided themselves in their sophistry, their wisdom. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? They love public debate. They love public speaking. Paul asks this question, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... Please, God, through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach. What do we preach? Christ. Christ crucified. And since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. They want some kind of miraculous work that they can see. Uh, Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. That's why you have all these Greek philosophers that they follow. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. By the way, what do Americans seek? Material wealth, affluence, success, comfort, power. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. Now, if we seek power as Americans, what do you think of crucified Savior and God? The Greeks despised that idea. For them, it was despicable. Absolutely despicable. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Chapter 2, verse 14. Paul continues and he says this. He says, the natural person, that's the person without God. That's the person without Jesus. That's the person without the Spirit. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly. They are foolishness to him. He does not understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. Now, folks, I want you to understand this. Paul talks and he contrasts a lot the wisdom of man with the wisdom of God in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. Basically, what Paul tells us is that the wisdom of of God is summed up for us in one person. The wisdom of God is summed up for us in one person, the person of Jesus. In this crucifixion. And what Paul tells us is that if a person looks to anyone else or anything else for salvation, they are hopelessly foolish. They are hopelessly, no hope, foolish. 
And they are hopelessly lost for all eternity. That is the teaching of the Bible. Why is it that some people hear the Word of God and believe, and others hear the Word of God and don't believe? And folks, this is what you need to understand. The problem of unbelief is a moral problem. The problem of unbelief, the problem of not believing in God, the problem of not believing in Jesus, the problem of not believing in the Bible is not because people lack evidence. It's because they lack wisdom. See, the problem of unbelief is not, uh, it's a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. And the unbeliever is unbelieving not because he lacks proof, it's because he lacks wisdom. Wisdom. He is bound up, she is bound up in his or her foolishness. You know, all of creation declares to us there is a creator. It does. All of creation declares to us that there is a creator. Yet some people say there's no creator, there's no proof. But all of creation, if you find a watch on the beach... You don't just say, wow, I guess there's a lot of plastic in the ocean, a little bit of metal and glass, and, and it swirled around in the ocean long enough and became a watch. Most of us recognize that as foolishness. But some people tell us that life, which is far more complicated than a watch, came about accidentally. I would say that's not wisdom, that's foolishness. You know, when we were... Children, we were, you know, we, we were taught that, that when a princess kisses a frog, it becomes a prince, okay? And then when we got older, we discovered that that was uh, unscientific, that was uh, foolishness. And, and now people are telling us, well, no, we came from frogs, you know? I mean, but, but all of life is telling us that there is a life giver. And all of creation is telling us there is a creator. And it's funny that many of the most celebrated minds who are supposed to be the smartest people in the world are telling us, you know, something very, very different. The problem of unbelief is a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. The, the, the unbeliever is unbelieving not because he lacks proof, but because he lacks wisdom. And this raises a question, the question, that we have got to wrestle with. By the way, when I say we have to wrestle with this, If we get this answer wrong, by the way, every single church in Fairfield and Sassoon and Solana County has to wrestle with this question. Nobody gets to get this one wrong. I don't care how big a church is. I don't care how celebrated it is. I don't care how many books the pastor writes or or how big the conference is he speaks at. I'm going to tell you, if, if we don't get this question right, we get everything wrong. And the question is simply this. How should we think about healthy biblical preaching? What should it look like? What should it sound like? Now, some of you are thinking, well, Gary, I'm not a preacher. Well, you listen to preaching. And, by the way, you probably are a preacher. You just don't know that you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
verses 1 through 5, the Bible says this. It says, Paul's writing, remember, Paul was the one who started the church in Corinth. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to go into a community where you don't know anybody and you stand up to preach for your first time. Paul is talking to the Corinthians about his experience of doing that. His experience of standing up to preach for a group of people for the very first time. That's what this is about. Paul started the church in Corinth, Acts chapter 18. We can read all about it. I know what that feels like. And Paul writes this. He says, when I came to you, brothers, and when I came to you, and I did not come preaching to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's not the way I came. For I decided to know nothing among you. He didn't come to impress people with his knowledge and his wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness. He felt weak. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's a guy, he is a British theologian, uh, scholar. Uh, He's pastored a few churches through the years. Don't expect you to know who he is, but a guy named uh, David Pryor. And he's written a couple of uh, written a couple of commentaries, and he's written a commentary on First Corinthians. And and, and, and Pryor writes about this. And, and you, folks, you have to understand, meditating on this passage this week scares the living daylights out of me. Scares me because I'm a pastor. I, I mean, I preach the word of God, or at least I'm supposed to preach the word of God every week. And this is what Pryor says. He says this paragraph provides the perfect touchstone for all preaching. By the way, every preacher needs a touchstone. He needs something that he goes back to to make sure that what he is doing is actually biblical. If he doesn't, if a pastor, I don't care how convincing he is, I don't care how eloquent he is. In fact, I would say the more eloquent you are, the more important it is that you have a biblical touchstone. This paragraph provides the perfect touchstone for all preaching as much as as much as in what Paul rejected, as in what he determined to pursue. See, Paul rejects a lot when he comes to preach. He says, there, there are searching questions here for the preacher. Is our preaching a genuine proclamation? Is it genuine? Do we proclaim the mighty acts of God, whereby God has borne witness of himself in Jesus? Do we obscure our proclamation with lofty words? Trying to sound smart. Trying to be creative. Trying to be relevant. Do we obscure our proclamation with lofty words or anything else? Have we made a firm decision to make Jesus Christ and Him crucified both the theme of our preaching and the center of our living? 
do we experience proper tentativeness? I know what it feels like on Saturday night to feel so anxious because I'm not sure if I'm really getting it right. Do we experience proper tentativeness and do we taste our own vulnerability as preachers of the gospel in a pagan and hostile world? Does our preaching demonstrate the power of the Spirit? Do the results of our preaching demonstrate the power of the Spirit? Are people's lives being changed? Do they know the power of the Spirit in their own lives? These are extremely important questions that every pastor needs to wrestle with, needs to lie awake from time to time. And these are questions every church needs to struggle with. Do you struggle when you read the Bible? I hope you do. I hope you do. You're in a dangerous place when you never struggle. When Paul came to the Corinthians, he came to them proclaiming the testimony of God, but he didn't try to use high-sounding, lofty speech, persuasive words, clever arguments. He didn't do that. He came preaching with simplicity. He came preaching, claiming only to know Christ and His crucifixion. By the way, something that the Greeks thought was complete foolishness. They thought it was moronic. They thought only an idiot would believe in a crucified God. He didn't feel compelled to dress up the gospel with fancy words. He didn't come to them in strength. He came to them in weakness. He didn't come, by the way, If we worship power as a nation, Paul would not be be welcome at our church growth conferences because he came in weakness. He came with nothing to boast about except the gospel. He he didn't come with a sense of his own self-importance. He came with fear and trembling. And that, that should cause every one of us to stop You should stop when you read the Bible. And you should wrestle. What was Paul afraid of? Why was Paul trembling? You ever been so afraid you trembled? You ever have that experience? You ever know a fear that just... um, It just leaves you trembling. Maybe it even paralyzes you momentarily. What was Paul afraid of? Was he afraid of being mocked? Remember, Paul started the church in Acts 18. In Acts 17, he was in Athens. He was mocked. Is that what he was afraid of? Um, Was he afraid of being run out of town? Again, starts the church in Corinth, chapter 18. First part of chapter 17, he gets run out of Thessalonica. Then he gets run out of town in Berea. Was he afraid of being mocked? Was he afraid of being run out of town? Was he afraid of being beaten and imprisoned? Acts 16. That's what Paul went through when he took the gospel to Philippi. He was beaten, 
And then he was imprisoned. Is that what Paul was afraid of? Um, was he afraid of Corinth's reputation for gross pagan immorality? By the way, there was a word that came, I don't know, came into the Greek language. It basically means this, to Corinthianize. You know what it means to Corinthianize? It means imagine anything you want that would be considered to be sexually um, disagreeable. That's what it meant to Corinthianize. They were a people who other Greeks thought of as being immoral. Is that what Paul was afraid of? Was he afraid, was he concerned that they would reject the gospel if he shared it with them in such simple terms? Paul was afraid. He was trembling. What was Paul afraid of? Was Paul afraid of the temptation to be relevant in preaching? Was he afraid to try to, was he afraid of the temptation to, 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 to be relevant, to sound wise, to fit his understanding of the gospel? to the marketplace of lost souls? To expand his market share of lost souls in such a way that he could grow his his church's market share of religion in Corinth? Is that what he was afraid of? What was Paul afraid of? Paul preached the gospel afraid. I think maybe what he was afraid of is he was afraid of getting it wrong. Afraid of giving in to all these subtle pressures that can creep its way into a pastor's message. I know something about this. I know something about this. Um, Many times I've stood up and preached afraid. Afraid that my preaching would not be clear. Afraid that my preaching would not be compelling, powerful, persuasive, life-changing. I have struggled almost weekly for 25 years. By the way, I usually struggle on Sunday afternoon too. I used to, on Sunday afternoons, I'd, I'd, I'd be sitting around thinking about all the things I said I wished I hadn't said or thinking about the things I didn't say I wished I had said. And, and what I like to tell people is that I used to look at the help wanted ads. By the way, that's not a joke. That's true. But after meeting a friend of mine, Paul Noel, I just went straight to the discount liquor ads. Uh, but I have struggled. I've struggled. And I think most pastors do. We want to get it right. Oftentimes I've, I've tried to rely on my own persuasiveness. I have. This is a confession of sin. This is a confession. This is me telling you the truth about my soul. Oftentimes I've tried to rely on my own persuasiveness, my passion, my cleverness, my storytelling abilities. I've done this many times. Countless times. I struggle with it every week. But I haven't given up on preaching the Scriptures. By the way, I don't think God's given up on me. Regardless of what Paul was afraid of, um, His words, preaching, 
they weren't dependent on human wisdom. Rather, they were a demonstration of the Spirit of God, the power of God, so that their faith did not rest in and depend upon human wisdom, but on the power of God. So, so what does this mean for you and me? What does this mean for you and me? The first thing it means is this, I believe, is it means that God wants us to be faithful witnesses of the testimony of God. Uh, It's very interesting in this text. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty uh, speech or wisdom, for I decided to know... And he goes on, verse 3, he says... Somewhere in this verse, and I've lost my place. Um, and I'm lost, and I can't find it. Okay. Okay, there's, there's part of the embarrassment. This is part of what I'm afraid of. As I start preaching, and I get completely lost. Let me just say, God wants to be faithful witnesses of the testimony of God. He isn't interested in us trying to dress up the gospel with cleverly devised arguments, even though I had one a moment ago that I forgot. He isn't interested in in us trying to dress up the gospel with cleverly devised arguments or eloquent words. He wants us to proclaim Christ in his crucifixion in simple terms. This is what God wants us to do over the next 25 years. He, um, if you're afraid, don't worry about it. Don't worry about being afraid. Don't, don't worry about, I, I, I'm afraid. Every week I'm afraid. But big deal, who cares? See, my fear doesn't limit God and what God can do. A moment ago, Paul, or excuse me, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, Steve, <laughs> Steve was, was talking, he talked about, you know, what we're celebrating is God's faithfulness. And he made the comment that, that, that I would not... You know, I wouldn't view this work of our church as my work, but God's work through me. And I would say, yeah, God's work through me, and God's work through a lot of us, and sometimes God's work in spite of me. (laughs) That's what I would say. So you don't have to be afraid of being afraid. Ultimately, it's God's power that saves, not our clever arguments. Today, we're not celebrating 25 years of human accomplishment. We're celebrating 25 years of God's faithfulness. And we're going to celebrate with food. So what do we want to celebrate 25 years from now? I think more lives changed. Lives like Jim's this morning. What do we want to celebrate 25 years from now? The the testimony of God faithfully, simply proclaimed week after week in this church and other churches in our community. What do we want to celebrate? Praying like everything depends upon God. Because it does. What do we want to celebrate? I would say revival in our lives. Revival in the churches of this community and our country. What do we want to celebrate? A gospel light. A gospel light. Um, On every street and in every neighborhood of this community. What do we want to celebrate? One of the things that I love about our church is we've been able to be a part of helping launch eight new churches, working in partnership with NextGen. Wouldn't it be great if 25 years from now we could be a part of helping to launch 25 or maybe even 50 more churches in Northern California? 
Wouldn't that be fantastic? Uh, you, you know, one of the things that, that I always wanted to do when we first moved here is I wanted to see us be a part of, of, of putting together like a, a, a Bible training center in another part of the world that would train pastors, that would train church planners, that would train church leaders in other churches in, in other countries. And, and guess what? Right now, we are working in partnership with World Venture, with Jim and Annie Culp, who were just with us a couple of months ago. And today, we are working with them, praying for them, investing in their work. And, 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 and today, right now, in about 90 different churches and dozens of communities throughout Mexico, Peru, and Cuba, hundreds and hundreds of pastors, church planners, and church leaders are being trained. You know, what I'd love to be able to celebrate is maybe one day we get to be a part of maybe Bible schools like that, not just in Mexico, but maybe in South America, maybe in Africa, Asia, Oceania, Europe. Wouldn't that be great? But ultimately, what we want to celebrate 25 years from now is God's faithfulness, God's power in our lives, our community, and our world. Let's pray. God, today, we don't want to celebrate. Um, we don't want to celebrate our human accomplishments. We don't want to imagine that we have in any way added to what you have done. But we are grateful that we get to be a part of what you are building. That Jesus is building His church, and we get to build with you. And Lord, we want to learn how to build with gold, silver, and precious stones—not wood, hay, and stubble. We want to faithfully proclaim your word. And then, Lord, what we want to be able to celebrate in the future is we want to be able to celebrate your faithfulness in our lives and our world. And we pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.